0: Our, excuse me. Our scripture reading this morning is found in First Chronicles, chapter 29, verses 10 through 18. And on the Bibles there in front of you, uh, if you use the, those uh, Bibles, uh, that scripture is on page 357. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I, and what is my people, that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. For we are strangers before you, and sojourners as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. Our Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house, for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things, and now I have seen your people who are present here, offering freely and joyously to you. O oh Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and to direct their hearts toward you. Shall we pray? Our Father in heaven, Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, that uh, you have given to us so much, Lord. And uh, uh, every time we give back a little of that, it's because you've given it to us to give. Father, we do pray for uh, our brother as he comes forth and shares your word this morning. We ask you to give him clarity. We pray, Father, you give us uh, hearts in ears to listen. Father, may we uh, glorify you in this service. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Good morning. I was wondering if this thing was going to work, and it sure does. would say it's good to be with you this morning, but I'm usually with you on most Sunday mornings unless I'm somewhere else preaching and teaching, but um, it's great to be with you. Pastor Andrew reminded me that we have a number of newer people here. It seems like I can remember back when we first started coming in the first probably 10 years, it seemed like I knew everybody. And now I've got a lot of people that I don't know very well, and uh, if I haven't gotten to know you, it's not because I don't like you. Um, I just haven't got to know you yet, so please uh, make yourself acquainted. But in case you don't know who I am and my family, um, our picture's up here. Um, My oldest son, Jacob, and his wife, Savannah, are over here on the left. The guy who plays the drums is sticking in the back, Joshua. And Matthew is right here in the front, of course myself and my wife, and then Virginia, who is my mother-in-law, Rebecca's mom. She's not here this morning. She had cataract surgery, which went really well. So praise the Lord for that. Then Danae, who plays the bass over here, is mine. So you had no idea. I have so many family. Visible, maybe some of you. Um, Then Jonathan, my second oldest, and his wife, Bree, are right next to him. And then David, who runs around here doing a lot of sound equipment stuff. So that's our family. And um, I work with RBM Ministries, which stands for Rural Bible Mission. And um, it's been established and around since 1935. So that's 86 years, um, which is a long time. It's a long time to be steadily at doing the same thing. And uh, I'm grateful for the people that have gone ahead and uh, established a foundation of that kind of a ministry to people. And uh, their focus has been on children. So we've not been doing it in isolation of the church because God has established the local what? The local church to be the instrument through which he builds up and trains disciples and followers of Christ. That's why I'm a nut as far as being present and here in my local church. If I can be, I'm here. Because um, this is where God's at, and he's active, and he's busy. And, and our ministry to children is not done like us out there all by ourselves, but it's, it's designed and, and, and crafted in a way that we're trying to assist local churches in reaching children. Uh, for me, it's, it's difficult for me to understand why it is for some people who have a hard time... Relating to kids—is anybody here? You just like I struggle with relating to little kids. One person. Oh, wow! The rest of you guys are all potential RBM missionaries. That is good to know, because we need a bunch. But you know, sometimes when you, its when it comes to teaching kids, I, I often run into people that that struggle, and they say, you know, that's just not my thing, teaching little kids, and. Um, So we've been doing that and teaching predominantly elementary age kids. So that ranges anywhere from kindergarten up to fifth, sixth grade is kind of our niche where we do a lot of ministry. And we do that, uh, a large part of it, with public school children. And so what we do is a program um, called Release Time Bible Classes, where we will go to a local school and we'll set up times and dates and then with parents' permission, then we will take the kids out of school during the school day to a local church, and we will teach them a Bible lesson and spend anywhere from an hour to an hour and a half um, teaching them whatever we want from this book, Public School Children. And um, as long as their parents sign them up, Michigan has has a law that says that the school has to release them for religious education up to two hours a week. Um, We will go into a school and we'll typically just do one class a month so we don't overload their academic studies and make it difficult for them to to be able to participate and attend. But we'll go back to each school typically seven times during the course of a school year, so we'll cover seven different Bible lessons with that group of kids. Um, We have typically anywhere in 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 a regular year, things have been topsy turvy lately with COVID, um, last year and the year before. But we typically have every, anywhere from 6,000 to 7,000 kids who attend our release time Bible classes throughout the state of Michigan every month. And out of that group, six to 7,000, we estimate that at about 50% of those kids, so we're talking, we're talking 3,000 kids, 50% have no church involvement at all. Their parents don't take them. They don't teach them. They're not getting taught God's Word and learning about Christ in any other context. And so it's not surprising that when we are teaching them, that we are able to see a lot of of, um, productive ministry into the hearts of kids where they're hearing the truth, and they're at an age where they haven't built up their, their resistance to what the truth is. They haven't absorbed all the lies that that our adversary in our community, in our culture has built into people saying oh you can 't believe god you can 't believe this you can 't believe that and they don 't have all their defenses up and they haven 't built up this this whole facade of lies that you 've got to break through to get to them, and they 're hearing the truth, and many of them respond, and their hearts are transformed, and they become a child of God, and that tr- sends them on a trajectory of following christ uh, i can 't tell you. In the, in the 20 years that I've been serving with RBM ministry, I can't tell you how many people I have met who have said I came to trust Jesus Christ as my savior when uncle so-and-so came and taught a release time Bible class at my school and you know that just amazed me and we've had many of the people in this church who are senior citizens who told me their story about when they came to Christ over the years and and that transformed their life, and they became a follower of Christ who then became discipled and nurtured in their local church and has been faithful to the Lord ever since. And so that's, that's encouraged me because I know that this kind of a ministry to kids at that age is vital. And I know it from my own personal experience because I was seven years old when I put my faith and trust in Christ. And I didn't understand everything about the Bible, but I understood that Jesus Christ died for sinners, and I was one of them and I believe he rose again, and that he's the only one that could save me. And I have the opportunity when I teach release time Bible classes or vacation Bible schools, which is the program we run during the summer. Um, Al Torres teaches, uh, has been teaching our program here at Orangeville for quite a number of years. Um, I have the privilege of sharing the gospel with kids and to see, their, to see the lights go on and to see them come to know Christ. This is one of the most flattering pictures of me that goes way back, probably about 15 years, um, in the basement of Door Baptist Church, where I was teaching uh, some kids from Sycamore Elementary. Um, I've done the Hopkins School District uh, classes for 20 years, um, except for the last two. Um, COVID knocked me out in in uh, 2020. And uh, so far in 2021, we didn't have classes at all last school year, and I'm trying to get started. I'm hoping I can begin in November, so pray that that school will, will work with me and we'll be able to get started. But average over the years in just those two elementary schools, I've averaged right around, right around 80 kids on an annual basis that are enrolled in those two classes alone. So if you figure 50% of them haven't heard the... haven't don't have a regular church attendance, then I'm, I'm typically just in those two classes reaching about 40 kids and giving them the truth that they're not going to hear at this age of their life anywhere else. Um, when COVID kind of shut things down, this was kind of what things were looking like for me as far as the, um, the classes that I was conducting that ended up being cut a little bit short. But at Hopkins at that particular point, I had 52 enrolled. Sycamore had 26. Other schools were a little less. There were three schools that, been, that I was doing in the, um, let's see, that would be in the Parchment um, School District, North Elementary, Northwood, and Central. And then in the Kalamazoo School District, I had Spring Valley, El Sol, and Arcadia. El Sol, boy, was that a group. We had some real fun with uh, a lot of those kids who are bilingual, and I don't know Spanish. So they... <laughs> They were a challenge because they knew they could say and do things that I didn't have a clue of what they were up to. So, um, but anyway, so I had about 100. I had 166 kids enrolled um, back when things were running really good. But COVID's kind of put a put a hurdle there, and we've got to we've got to get a lot of those things reestablished uh, because of some changes in my ministry. I won't be able to carry as much of that load in the release time program as I did in the past, and so I'm going to have to scale back. I'll explain that here in just a second. So for 20 years of ministry, I've been doing Bible teaching, so um, when pastors are gone on vacation or churches without a pastor for a time, uh, I do pulpit supply and I teach as I'm able. I do the release time Bible classes and vacation Bible schools every year. I also teach Iwana and Word of Life um, as I have opportunity, different churches, some of them I'm at on a regular basis. Um, and then different outreach events, but a lot of what I've done over the 20 years has been building all the visual aids that the rest of RBM's workers use throughout the entire state to teach the classes for release time and to teach vacation Bible schools. And so my, my main uh, workload involves things like uh, drill presses and table saws and scroll saws and sliding radial arm saws and those kinds of things, and that's been my world for 20 years. Um, one of the visuals that I worked on is in the back at the table. My, my display is kind of hidden way off in the back, but an um, uh, uh, illustration of the fiery furnace. And one of the, the desires that we have, we're always trying to come up with an innovative visual to help capture the kid's imagination, draw their attention so that they'll listen. Because the only thing that's going to really change their heart, it's not the visual aid, it's the word of God, right? And so we're doing everything we can to help them get it, to understand it, to have it to have it resonate and stick in their mind so they like, wow that's hard to forget and you know with release time bible class it's amazing because these kids get out of school for an hour to an hour and a half it's like a field trip every month and man are they excited i mean when they when they call release time bible class on the pa system at hopkins elementary and you see sixty kids running down the hall they're not supposed to run but they do they're running down the hallway to get in line and man the, the vibes are juiced and they're excited and so when they come there's something new and they're hearing a story that gauges their attention and it sticks and i know it sticks because i'll come back the next month and i'll ask a few questions about what that lesson was about and guess what they know the answers and so it's a wonderful opportunity to really engage their heart and their mind and to plant the seed not just set a surface level where they just say oh yeah whatever and blow it off but to plant it deep and to let the Holy Spirit begin to use that to change their life. So for a big part of what I've done for 20 years is not just teaching, but enabling and facilitating other missionaries by providing their teaching visuals. Um, This is just a few of the visuals for a Vacation Bible School year laid out that will begin packing for their stuff. A typical set of visuals for Vacation Bible School fills up the entire back end of a minivan. So we we invest a lot in the visualized part to help kids learn the gospel. Um, This was a a visual of life-size, pretty close to life-size visual of Christ on the cross, and boy, don't you think that gets their attention. When I've taught this in Vacation Bible School and in other contexts, the room is very quiet. And what an opportunity to talk about how Christ took our sin on himself, and he gives us in exchange his righteousness as a gift, if we'll put our faith in him. Well. That was what I did for 20 years, and as of August, the beginning of August, my world has been flipped upside down, and I've been going through a new transition at RBM in the home office. So instead of building visuals, now I'm editing and managing the curriculum, and I'm also overseeing all the development of the artwork and all the resources that happen, so I'm more on the thinking side. So I've had to trade in all of my tools and go to one of those things, a desk, where it's not nearly so dusty and not nearly so hands-on. Uh, I've got a, a computer and an extra screen, and then i got a couple books that i got to think about on a regular basis, the Bible and a grammar book. Um, but to take, to take what I understand about the way kids think and my experience with them and to try to help shape the curriculum that we offer to our teachers and for churches that are using our curriculum so that they have something to work with and say, I know how I should teach this lesson to get across truths that these kids need to hear. And that's not always easy. Um, one of the lessons that I came across um, just kind of illustrates the, the, the reality that even though we reuse our curriculum uh, with release time every six years, we'll, we'll go back to a series and, and repeat it, with vacation bible school's every 7 years but that doesn't mean everything's been fixed and everything's polished and everything's good as it is um an example was there was the um the lesson related i i I got stuck here because the word mary has the y attached to the r over here and uh, that's not me that's just the the switch from powerpoint to the program that we have here i was like whoa you know as an editor now and seeing weird things um But this lesson about the virgin birth, I was reading through the introduction, and it had all of these names in the introduction. And I'm thinking, whoa, wait a minute. We're teaching kindergarten through sixth grade. Half of the kids that we have don't even go to church. And we're going to fling all these names out there, and it's just going to be like popcorn, and they're not even going to understand who we're talking about. And then you throw in a bunch of geographical terms that they don't know a clue about where they are in the world. And then you throw in a bunch of other terms that they don't know, like espoused and grotto. And um, what are some other ones in there that are interesting? Conceived. And then this little delicate situation that's kind of not too difficult to explain to little kids, right, about the virgin birth. You throw all that into one lesson. And I I started thinking, what do you end up with? Well, I did the math. Elementary math, twenty-seven different names, six geographical locations, twelve unfamiliar terms, and one really dicey subject, and you get one confusing lesson. And so it's time for that to be edited, right? Um, and so that's what I'm working on. Is in this particular series we're going into, I've been writing a lot, and uh, not just editing, but writing. So I'm I'm very 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 busy. So. Uh, One of the things that I get to do is work with some great artists. So we have uh, an artist who draws all of our original art, Santiago Martinez. And uh, then we also have a graphic artist who will take it and color it. And uh, together, that's what they've come up with is one of our scenes for the virgin birth. And I'm not the only person who's got to be thinking about how do you take a truth from God's word, translate it into an analogy or a picture or a form that will remember. I think about a man who was once in a Roman prison, and he was trying to, trying to imagine and, and visualize to himself, how am I going to communicate the, the seriousness of, of what it means to be prepared to engage in ministry and in working and laboring and being a witness for Christ? And he came up with a great idea. He said, I know what I'll do. I'll compare it to the armor of a soldier. And he saw plenty of soldiers while he was a prisoner. And uh, we take those same things. And, you know, there's little toys that kids can dress up nowadays nowadays and uh put on the armor of god. And how many of you that analogy and that picture of the armor of god has helped you remember important truths? And that's all we're trying to do with the kids is to begin to say, okay, here's some biblical truths and how can we put it and package it in a form that's going to really stick? And um so it's not original what we do, but it's it's in line with what God has creatively graciously done to help us remember things. So that's my new challenge, and I ask for your prayer. Uh, I am really, really swamped. Things in the transition have not gone perfectly. Um, I have lost several nights of sleep. Um, I've I've had to roll out of my bed and lay on the floor and say, God, I don't have the answers for this, and I don't know how in the world I'm going to handle it, but you knew it was going to be like this, and so help me trust you because I got... I'm supposed to manage curriculum, and some of the files that were passed along to me don't have the latest and correct version of, of literature. And, you know, when you come to a, a vacation Bible school manual that's over 100 pages long, and you have to think about the process of retyping all that in and getting it up to where it ought to be to reflect where things are now, I lost, a, I lost some sleep. <laughs> and, um, I need, I need prayer, just that I'll be able to do that and to do it well. Uh, I'm really behind right now on a deadline that's coming up at the end of this month. And I've got to write, write three and a half scripts yet. Um, and to edit those and figure out how to illustrate one of them so that our artist can draw it and illustrate it. And that our new visual aid manager, um, who is Austin Moore. I don't know if Austin's here this morning. There he is. Is he in the back? All right, there he is. Austin's in the back. Hi, Austin. Um, Austin is now taking my place in the shop, and uh, so I've got to figure out how to get the art produced so that he can begin to create some of the things that will be used later this the release time season. So, okay. With well, that being said, let's get into God's word. You know, I um, I really struggled talking about myself at the beginning and the ministry that the Lord's called us to. I really wanted to jump in to this first and then stick me at the end because this whole missions conference focus is on the supremacy and the exalted person of Jesus Christ. It's not about Tim Cornish and it's not really about RBM ministries though God uses that. It's about our Lord and about what he is doing in this world. And our, our, our theme passage is in the book of Colossians. But what I want to do today is I want to take you back to the Old Testament. I figured if I pick this passage, nobody else will probably do the same thing. You know, if you're doing a mission conference, do you ever think feel like this, Mike? All the time. All the time. You know, it's like, oh, if, I'm, if, I do that, if I do that passage, somebody else is going to do it too. And uh, they're going to hear the same thing over and over. So I figured I'd be safe with the, birth, the book of 1 Chronicles. So here we go. And what I want to do is I want, to, I want you to focus in and, and look at with me an event that took place thousands of years ago when King David had it in his heart to build a temple for God's glory. And the things that David says and the things that David does as I began to study this passage just jumped out at me and the parallels... And the, the things that are, are very similar and identical to things that relate to exalting Christ and the work of missions is just stunning to me. And I wish I could cover it all with you, and we'll probably only get about maybe a quarter of the way through, all right? So let's jump in, though, and uh, we're going to talk about this temple that David did. We're going to kind of cover it a little bit in full scope, and then we're going to come back and start looking at Some of the parallels and the analogies that help us think about how do we exalt Christ and how does that relate to the way we live. All right, so 1 Chronicles chapter 22 is not the first time that the Bible mentions David having a desire to build a temple for the Lord, but it is kind of a a strategic moment when David not only has the plans in mind and the desire in mind, but now he's got a location in mind. How many of you have ever had desire to build a house or to do something, and, and it was all just an idea, but then once you find the location, things start moving? You ever, you've, have you ever been there? Or you say, you know, someday I want a new car, and it's all just a fuzzy idea until you start shopping for cars, and you start test driving cars, and then all of a sudden you find one that you really like. It's different, right? And for David, this idea and this longing of his heart to build a temple for the Lord was starting to come to a to a real a head, and he was excited, and things were things were like setting themselves up. And David, in verse in chapter twenty two, verse one, he says, "Here shall the house of the Lord God, and here the the altar of burnt offering for Israel. Here shall be the house." Of the Lord, God, he's got the location in mind. We don't have time to talk about how that location became um, selected. You can read about it. It's not a pretty story, but it is a testament to God's grace. So, chapter 22, David's got the location in mind. So, what does he do? Verse two says, David commanded to gather together the resident aliens who were in the land of Israel, and he set stone cutters to prepare dressed stones for building the house of God. David also provided great quantities of iron for nails for the doors of the gates and for clamps, as well as bronze in quali- and quantities beyond weighing, and cedar timbers without number. For the Sidonians and the, and the Tyrians brought great quantities of cedar to David. For David said, Solomon, my son, is young and inexperienced, and the house that is to be built for the Lord, now get this, The house that's to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent of fame and glory throughout all lands. I will therefore make preparation for it. So David provided materials in great quantity before his death. David is looking forward and he's imagining he's going to build a temple for the Lord and he says i'm going to be building it for for god and it's going to be it has to be exceedingly magnificent this is something he tells later he says this building is not going to be for man this is for the lord god and so his view of god is so exalted that he's like am going to have, it's going to have to be, it's a bigger project than my son solomon is up to at this stage of his life and so i'm going to help and prepare his whole thought was Solomon's experience. The work is what. The work is great. This is his explanation in chapter twenty-nine. The work is great. The work is. It's got to be a huge palace. It's got to be. A, it's got to be a glorious place. It's got to be. It's got to reflect. It's got to reflect the nature of God that it's representing. Or the world will never know how great He is. We're talking about the God who created the heavens and the earth. We're talking about the God who rules over angels and who rules over everyone on this earth and who rules over the wind and the sea and the fish and everything in this planet. The disciples, it blew their mind when they saw Jesus Christ in the boat and they said, do even the winds and the waves obey him? Can you imagine what Peter thought when he threw his fishing line into the sea and he pulled out a fish with enough money in it to pay for his taxes and Jesus' taxes? How many of you would like to go fishing like that? I wouldn't mind. But so here's, here's David, David, though, and he's viewing God as the one who's sovereign over everything. And so he says, this temple's got to be magnificent, and it's going to take a lot more than my young son is up to preparing to do. I'm going to help him. Well, the reason he felt like he needed to help Solomon was not just that Solomon was young, but David wanted to do as much as he was able to be involved in this project. In in chapter 29, verse 2, he said, So I provided for the house of my God so far as I was able. It's interesting because David, in his original plan, intended to build it himself. That was his original plan. And the Lord had to stop him and had to say, David, I'm grateful that you have it in your heart to build a temple for me, but you're not going to be the one to do it because you are a man of war. And you have accumulated much of your wealth through war. And I don't want the building of my temple in the eyes of the world, I believe this is what God was getting at, I want the building of the temple in the eyes of the world to be viewed as something that comes at the defeat and crushing of other nations. Because what God wanted is this building to represent to all the nations that he is the universal God that they can come to and worship. And so God told David, you're not gonna be allowed to build this temple, but your son, who will be born to you, Solomon, he will build the temple. He'll be a man of peace, and so he'll be the one to construct this. Well, David, David, how many of you would have like, been really down in the mouth about that? You set your heart on something, and then all of a sudden somebody says, oh, you can't do it. You just give up. So what's the use? That's not what David did. David's like, well, if I can't build it, God didn't say I can't store up supplies for it. God didn't say that I can't make plans for it. I can still be involved. I can still do as much as I can. You know, how many of us have, have felt cheated or disappointed in ourselves that I wish I had a, an ability to serve God in a way that I just don't? You ever feel that way? It makes me sick when I watch Josiah play the piano. (laughs) I mean, the guy, I don't even think he was looking at notes. Do you ever watch him playing the piano? He just goes. There was a day when I was a teenager, I dreamed of playing the piano. The only problem is my fingers and my brain don't work together very well. And I just... And I didn't have a piano, and I never got to learn. Then I dreamed about owning a guitar and playing it, and I got one. It makes me sick when I watch my son play it, and I can't do what he does. (laughs) And I tried long enough to make my fingers hurt once, and never happened. David didn't get down in the mouth and just give up. When God says, you can't build the temple, he's like, well, at least I can still be engaged. I can still accumulate materials. I can still work on the plans. I can still get things set up and ready. I can still, I can still organize the people, and I can do all kinds of things. I just can't build the thing. And so David set, up, set out, and we read it. He began to organize all of the, the labor force that he had available to him as the king, and he put him to work cutting stones, he took the national treasury and he funneled it all towards storing up gold and silver and supplies for the temple. He, he, he made trade agreements with foreign nations in order to get cedar lumber, in order to build and, and create all of this stuff for the temple. David gave Solomon, his son, the plan. He gave him the architectural drawings that God had given to David of what this temple ought to look like. He gave them all the organizational and the operational plans, and he gave them the furnishing plans, the things about how each article of the temple was going to be built and how much gold or how much silver it would take. All those details David passed on to his son. He had it all worked out. Now, the Bible talks about how much David laid up in store, and it uses the word talents. How many of you know what a talent is? It's not an ability that you have, like playing sports. When the Bible mentions talents, it's a specific weight of what they used in their day. And I, I, I never can remember how much is a talent. And I even have a hard time, I understand a pound, but I have a hard time when people start talking in tons. I have to always look it up. How much is a ton? You guys know? 2,000 pounds. 2,000 pounds but I don't know what 2,000 pounds is, so I, can't, I have a hard time relating to numbers like that. So when the Bible starts talking about the things that David laid up in store, I have to think in terms of my minivan because I have a good relationship with my minivan. We've been spending way too much time together lately. It's been getting more of my attention than my wife has with all the ways it's been breaking down. But I looked up on the Internet, and of course everything you read there is believable, right? Um... And it said that the average SUV or minivan or light truck is 3,477 pounds. So actually, my minivan, the Toyota Sienna, it doesn't quite look that nice, but it's a little on the heavier side. But we'll go with the average, 3,477 pounds. I want just to look at how much David prepared and laid up in store to build the temple for the honor of the God that he wanted the nations to revere. I knew this would happen. Anytime we take it from PowerPoint and throw it into ours, it's that way. But here we go. David's national preparation of gold was 2,157 minivans worth of gold. Now obviously that wouldn't be as big in size. We're taking it all and crunching it down to a gold bar. But it would weigh as much as my minivan, it would take 2,157 of my vans to equal how much he funneled into storing up gold for the temple as the king. But on top of that, when he came to the people of Israel and he began to challenge them, turn over to 1 Chronicles chapter 29. 1 Chronicles
0: 29,
1: verse 2, he says, So I have provided for the house of my God so far as I was able. In other words, I used my position as king to lead our nation and to accumulate as much as I could organize and strategize and and control. But verse 3, he says, Moreover, in addition to all that I provided for the holy house, I have a treasure of my own of gold and silver. And because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of my God. 3,000 talents of gold of the gold of Ophir, and 7,000 talents of refined silver for overlaying the walls of the house, and for all the work to be done by craftsmen, gold for the things of gold, silver for the things of silver. So now, like I said, I don't understand what talents are, but David took his own personal thing, and we translated it into minivans. And David's personal wealth of gold that he contributed towards the building of the temple was 64 minivans worth. So you're starting to imagine what, like, the the wholesale car dealership going north on US-131. So look at all them vans and just imagine that that's all just bars of gold laying out there. And David's stockpiling this for the temple. And then he comes to the people and he says, that's what I've been, that's what I've done. And he's not bragging because later on he goes, who am I? Who are we, Lord, that we should be able to even give to you for this? Because everything that we have, it's only come from you in the first place. So he's not bragging. He's not showing off. He's just trying to be a good example. And he's trying to communicate to the people that our God, to his people, our God is a great God. And he deserves to be honored, and he deserves to be lifted up, and he deserves to be, to be revered and praised for what he has done. And so he asked the question, he says, So, who then will offer willingly, consecrating himself today to the Lord? He says, that's what I'm giving. I'm giving it out of what I have. What will you, do you guys want to join me in exalting the Lord? And they did. It says the leaders of the Father's houses made their free will offerings. What kind of an offering was it? It was a free will offering. And that, that's the, the repeated emphasis throughout this passage about them giving. In verse 5, it says, Who then will offer willingly? And then in verse 6, he says, Their free will offerings. If we drop down to verse 9, it says, The people rejoiced because they had, been given, they had given willingly. For with a whole heart they had offered freely to the Lord. And that brought great rejoicing. Verse 14, when David says, Who am I, what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? Verse 17, he says, I know, my God, that you test the heart and you have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things. And now I've seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. And so here's David, and he's trying to understand, and you know, if we understand who the Lord is, is it difficult for us to give to him? You know, God. the Bible says God loves a cheerful giver. And when David was instructing some of the churches who were offering some help to some other believers, and they were trying to store it up and lay it up, David says, you know, don't give grudgingly or don't give out of necessity. Don't do it because someone's twisting your arm because God loves a cheerful giver. He loves someone who's giving because they love him and they worship him and they want to exalt him because they know what he's done for them and they know that whatever they give him is what he gave them in the first place and if I give that to him, then is God able to provide for my needs? I'm sure he is. And so they gave willingly and they gave generously. In fact, they gave 11 minivans worth of gold. So you add it all up together between all that David had moved the nation to accumulate, all that he had given himself, all that the people gave, they came up with 2,232 minivans worth of gold. That's a lot. And then, when he, when he handed all that over to Solomon, and Solomon's taken the reins as king, get this, he says, Solomon, that's not enough. You're going to have to add more. I mean, that, that blows my mind. How is that not enough? Well, it's not enough if you understand who we're giving it what? Who we're giving it to. We could look at the same thing with Silver. David's national preparation amounted to 21,570 minivans worth of silver. His personal contribution was 151 minivans. The leaders then who who gave out of their supplies gave 22 minivans for a subtotal of 21,743 minivans worth of silver. And David told Solomon, you're going to need to add more. Because the God we're building this temple to is worth more. He's worth all that and more. Well, that's that temple. That's what they built. That's how they viewed it. And I want to compare that to another temple. A different temple, but a temple that's very much the same. That temple was intended to be what David called it was a house for the Lord. It was a place for God to dwell. And he understood not even the heaven of heavens could contain God. He knew that. And Solomon acknowledged that when he finally built the temple and dedicated it. But what they were saying is, this is a sacred place where we can go to worship the Lord and for him to be in a, in a relationship with us. With that thought in mind, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and verse 10, it says this, This is Paul speaking. He says, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. What's he building? Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So we're not talking about a physical building here. He's talking about something different. He says, Now if anyone builds, he talks about whether it's good work or not good work, He says each one's work is going to be evaluated, what sort of work each one has done, and if the work of anyone is built on that foundation survives God's God's evaluation, it'll be rewarded. If not, it won't. And he talks about all this building. Well, what's he talking about? Well, look what the very next verse says. Do you not know that you are God's what? God's temple. You know what what, what Paul here is building? He's doing ministry. He's sharing the gospel with people that have never heard it. He's going to Gentile nations that have never known the truth that there is a God, one God over all, heaven and earth. And he came and died for our sins so that we could be delivered and rescued. And he offers us a home in heaven with him. He And not only that, not just a home in heaven with him to where we have to wait someday to have a relationship with him, but he will give us his spirit who will come and live within us and dwell with us. And we, now on this planet, are walking temples of God. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? There's a reality that Jesus said that when he comes, he would be the one who would baptize with the Holy Spirit. And he gives the Holy Spirit as a gift, and he's the seal of our relationship with God when we put our hope and our faith and trust in him. And the Holy Spirit will come and live within us. And he goes on to say, if anyone destroys the temple, God will destroy him. God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Temple. We don't have time to unpack all this, but I want you to get the, the gist of it, okay? Just hang with me and stick with the, 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 the basic principle. If we go back to 1 Corinthians 6, a couple chapters later, Paul says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Do you not know that your body is a what? It's a temple of the Holy Spirit who's where? Within you. See, this temple was intended to be a place where God would dwell with his people. And now Paul is sharing the truth of the gospel with people. They're putting their faith in him and God gives them the Holy Spirit to live within them and they are actual temples, the kind of temple that God has in mind all along that that temple over there was only going to be a picture of. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God. You're not your own for you are bought with a price. So... Glorify God in your what? In your body. Don't we, don't we need that instruction nowadays? You know, we live in a world where the ideology is, it's my body, I can do with it anything I want. As long as I'm not doing it against someone else's will, then I can do whatever I please. You know, it's, isn't it easy for our minds to get conformed to this ideology that my body is my own? But as believers in Christ, we need this reminder, don't we? I need it. I need it. That the, the world's ideology that my body is my own is not the, not the principle I live by. Not the one I should live by. And if I ever start drifting that I need to be corrected. So that I understand that my body is the temple of the Holy what? The Holy Spirit. I'm not my own. My body is his. It's sacred place. And I need to be careful about what I do with my body because the Holy Spirit goes everywhere I go. He's with me everywhere I'm at. In John chapter 4, this is exactly what Jesus was referring to when Jesus was talking to the woman at the well in Samaria. She was someone whose heart was a mess. She didn't have any way out. But she had hope because the Messiah came. And the Messiah ministered to her. And she had this question about where do you worship. She's like, you people say that you should worship in Jerusalem. That's where the temple was built. We say that you're supposed to worship on this mountain. But where do you say that we're supposed to worship? Which place is the right one? And Jesus said what? He said... Neither on this mountain the day is coming. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor Jerusalem will you worship the Father. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. So, in Ephesians we read that you are members of the household of God. People that they were far from God, they were Gentiles, they didn't have any kind of hope, but now they are members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So here we have this concept of building a what? It's going to tell us building a temple. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy what? You could say it. It's okay. It's in the Bible. A holy what? A holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a, into a what? Into a dwelling place for God... By the Spirit. And that's what drove Paul. That's what, that's what it caused him to be out involved in ministry because he was thinking to himself, I am building a temple for the Lord. Every individual that I share the gospel with who puts their faith and trust in him, God is living within that person now. And not only is their body becoming a temple for the Lord, but they are being joined along with every other believer and being built up together as a sacred place of fellowship and union with Christ where we will stand before God together worshiping him. You see, the temple is more than just your body. It is too great, is too great for that. Remember what David said? The house that I have to build, it must be a great one. It's gotta be big enough and broad enough, expansive enough and amazing enough to reflect the amazing glory of God. And you know what? The temple that God intends to, to build is bigger than just you, and it's bigger than just me. It encompasses people throughout all of this globe, from every tribe and every nation and every language. And so Jesus, as he sent his disciples out, he said, go into all the world and preach the gospel, beginning in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the, to the earth, because together we are becoming and being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And I'll be honest with you, I don't wrap my brain around all of that, but I have a feeling when I'm joined together in heaven, praising the Lord with Josiah at the piano, and somebody else doing some things I can't do, and our hearts are united in worship to the Lord, that is going to be a temple like I've never, I can't imagine. And it's something he deserves. And the glory and the honor is there. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 5 we get a little bit of a glimpse of what this is going to be like we don't have time to unpack all the context but it says in verse 2 that John who's writing this account of what he saw he says I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice who's worthy to open the scroll and break its seals and no one as though it had been slain who is that lamb it's who John pointed to and said behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world it's the one who like a sheep before it shears is silent so he opened not his mouth when he was being crucified on the cross and here is our risen Lord he says I saw him like a lamb standing as though it had been slain and he goes on, and it talks about what's going on in verse 9. He says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living, the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels Does that sound familiar? If we go back to Second Chronicles chapter 29, and David is praising the Lord, and he's blessing the Lord, he says in verse 10, he blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel. And he said, blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. You are exalted as head above all. That's what we read in Ephesians, that Jesus Christ is exalted and he is the head of all. Do Do you get the connection here? The God that David was building a temple to is the very Savior that we exalt and we worship. And He is worth everything. I think about this um, where I'm going with this, unless I hope nobody thinks I'm talking about money. I'm not talking about money. I'm not talking about how much gold we need to set aside to do some project. It's about what David challenged the people when he said, who of you, who of you will consecrate himself to the Lord? He said, I've given everything I can. i prepared as much as I'm able. I've used all my abilities and my position to to exalt God, and I'm giving everything out of my treasury I can. And he says, is there anybody else here that thinks like me, that he's worth it? And David was saying, who of you will consecrate yourself? And as we're working on building the temple of the Lord, sharing the gospel with people that will come to know him as as their Savior, how are we are we understanding who we're doing this for? That when we're sharing the truth with people, we are exalting our Lord, and it's going to bring honor and glory to him as he deserves for eternity. When I teach a group of six, six kids in a little room in a church, whether it's 60 or two, if one of those kids comes to know Christ, The Bible says there's more joy in heaven for that than we can imagine over one sinner who repents. I think they get it. They understand because this is going to result in the glory of their God. So my question is, I'm thinking about myself. David says, I've done everything I can. I prepared everything I was able. I don't know about you, when I get to death's door, I wanna be able to say that. I wanna be able to say I did everything I was able to build God's temple and by that meaning to share the truth of the gospel with people that will put their faith in him and be built up together into the temple and a a place of habitation for the Lord. Is your heart there? I don't profess to do it perfectly. I I get weary, and I get tired. David said, he told Solomon, he says, I've gone to great pains to store up treasure for this temple. It wasn't easy for David either. It was hard. But David never lost focus on who he was doing it for. I want to close with this prayer, and it's not my prayer. It's the prayer of David. I think back, there was a t- season of time where there was a big infatuation. I shouldn't say infatuation. Yeah, I guess it was. A big infatuation with the prayer of Jabez. How many of you heard, heard that and maybe bought a book about it and maybe prayed it yourself and took a prayer that was a good prayer and sincere from a man many years ago and you embraced it for yourself? Well, I haven't understood why this one's not been popularized quite as much. But this is what David prayed. He said, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts towards you. I pray that I'll never lose focus and that my heart will always be directed towards you. Lord, give him what he deserves. I pray your heart does too. Let's pray. Lord, I um. I guess I get choked up because I know you. I know you deserve far, far more than I've given. You've given so much to me. Forgive me for the times when I lose sight of your glory. When I allow my own weariness or my own distractions with things to diminish what I could be doing for you. Lord, help us see the lost for their need, but help us also to see it as the means by which that you will be praised and lifted high for all of eternity. We bless your name forever and ever. And we pray this because I know this honors of Christ, and it pleases you, Father. Amen.